ReachSearch is a podcast that explores current nutritional research and health studies. Our lawyer says we have to let you know that this podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informative purposes only. If you have any health questions, see your doctor or licensed health professional. Hi, everybody. Welcome to REIT Search Podcast. We have a really exciting edition, an episode coming out now. So my name is Lisa Cleach, and my pronouns are she and her, and we want to do land acknowledgement as well. So I want to acknowledge that I'm in Kitchener, Waterloo in Ontario, and we are situated on land that is the traditional home of the neutral Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabe people. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Lindsay, your co-host. My pronouns are she, her, and I would like to acknowledge that I am in Edmonton and our land is situated on the land that is traditional to the home of the Cree, the Sutina, and the Métis people. And we are very excited to welcome Barbara Sheldon as our guest interviewee on this episode. So Barbara, go ahead. Yay! This is exciting. (laughs) Welcome, Barbara. Hi. Thank you both. I'm so grateful to be here. My name is Barb. My pronouns are she and her, and I am so grateful to live, work, and play on the Treaty 7 regions of Southern Alberta and to the people of the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Sutina, and Stony Nakoda Nations, and the Métis Nation Region 3. Awesome. Thank you so much. So for our listeners, Barbara is an excellent guest that we're looking forward to interviewing. Um, Now, here's a bit about Barbara before we dive right in. Barbara has over 20 years of food expertise, and this comes from her research. She has extensive academic research as well as scholarship. And the areas that she's been focusing on are food dignity, education, and leadership. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me. I love the idea of a podcast that focuses on the research portion of nutrition. It's so needed, and I really appreciate you both doing this so much. Thank you. Uh, We're going to dive right into question one for you, because this is focusing, and, and a lot of it is based on the fact that you recently did a master's degree in the area of nutrition, but a very unique area. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was about? What was the topic? For sure. So my thesis topic was the role of food literacy education in the lives of marginalized youth, particularly transgender and gender non-conforming youth. And it there is no actual program, I'll just say right off the bat, that studies that specifically. It's very specific research. Um, but it came about just briefly, I'll tell you, because um, I have a child in the transgender community and I noticed as a chef and as a nutritionist that the more that I worked with uh, his friends in the community, the more I saw improvement in their overall confidence and health. So I really wanted to study that and contribute research to the field so that we could see for sure if teaching people about food and um, providing food literacy education actually improved their Uh, their health through cooking. 
So I, I looked for a program that would align with what I wanted to do. So I kind of did it backwards, you know, instead of finding a program and then deciding on a research topic, I already knew my topic. And I ended up going to Royal Roads University uh, through their Masters of Arts of Interdisciplinary Studies program, because interdisciplinary studies means you can pull from a variety of faculties and disciplines and then um, pile that all into your research, which is wonderful. So then um, I pitched it to them. So this is what I'd like to do. And they loved it immediately. That's the wonderful thing about adult education, I think, is that um, really good institutions really want to support your learning. And so then I, then I luckily stumbled upon the um, dean of the program who happened to be a transgender person. And so it was just this incredible alignment. And I had no idea that at the time he was not taking on any master's students. And I just very brazenly asked him if he would be my research advisor. And he liked the, the topic enough because his area for his PhD was also obviously transgender research uh, that he decided to take it on. And I only learned afterwards that people said, oh my gosh, I can't believe he decided to take you on. That's such an honor. And it certainly was an honor working with him was brilliant and really helped me understand my own level of scholarship as well. That sounds fascinating. I love the, the unique perspective. You must have learned quite a bit during your time there. Would you be able to share with us a little bit about your research, what you specifically were looking at, like, you know, boots on the ground, what you were doing, and then uh, share Mm -hmm. some of your results and your findings with us? Sure. Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that um, as a new graduate student, of course, I went into my research with bias. and And I just explained that to you, that my bias was that I saw kids, youth within that community doing well. And I wanted to contribute research that showed that. And so that was my first unlearning was making sure that I didn't have bias in my research, even though I just so wanted to prove that food literacy education is effective for marginalized communities. So after removing my bias, um, it was really helpful because it started to reveal to me that sure, there was efficacy in programming, but there was also a lot of barriers to the education that marginalized youth experience. And so most of my research time was spent understanding the barriers that transgender and gender nonconforming youth experienced in relation to education of all types. And I would say the biggest surprise and the most impactful finding was learning that one of the barriers is actually the youth's own sense of worth. And if they do not feel their own sense of worth or dignity moving into a program, um, they actually won't even bother with a program. Even if it's the, the best program and, and we've given them um, a budget for it or, or you know, found space and made sure the, the kid has transportation and all the opportunities in the world to take the program, even parental support, or caregiver support, because all those things are barriers. But what it really boiled down to was if somebody doesn't feel worthy of taking programming, they're not going to take it. And that was both heartbreaking and really revealing because from there we've been able to, I've been able to work with organizations uh, like the Food Literacy Center in Sacramento, California, and help them understand that, that this is a major barrier, that society has essentially put this barrier um, in front of these kids. and 
sort of pigeonholed them into often judging their own sense of worth. So that was, um, that was surprising for sure. And then the other barriers uh, were equally important, like for instance, understanding that marginalized youth don't like to be studied. Nobody likes to be a test subject, particularly a group of people who already feel like they're under a microscope. So really starting to understand the ethics behind how to work with in a participatory way, not um, sort of, you know, as like the overlord or overseer of some academic research study and, and they were feeling like test subjects. So that was really important as well. And then, um, and then understanding how to develop the program in an effective way so that they could really hear it, get it, understand it, digest it, use it was also hugely important. And the outcome of that was knowing that follow-up for all of these programs, both cooking and nutrition programs, consistent follow-up over the course of a year is really key to ensuring that these skills, these life skills, like for instance, basic knife skills, nutrition skills really sunk in and actually started to make an impact in their lives. That's fantastic. I love hearing about that. Yeah, no, I was, I was saying that it's just so fascinating. Um, I, I love the, the emphasis on kind of keeping, checking your bias at the door to begin with. I think that's a huge root in any kind of research, whether you're mm-hmm. doing primary research yourself as you do when you're going through grad school or whether you're reading studies or articles about studies online. I think that's a, a great one. And it's such a sneaky one too. Bias is such a sneaky one. It really, I think, surprises a lot of people when they stop. Like, I love how you just took a moment to stop and realize, oh, wait a second. I have bias here. I need to be aware of this and I need to figure out how to get rid of it. (laughs) And, you know, if we had more people that were able to do that and say, wait a second, I do have a bias. because How can I try and work like work this so that it it's not there inhibiting Mm -hmm. me anymore and and the bias was clouding the ability to truly see the research the research was not that food literacy education is effective the research was it's effective sometimes but there's barriers in the way and so if my bias was oh nutrition and culinary education is so important for everybody then I never would have seen the barriers. And that was what made the most profound impact and will continue to make the most profound yeah. impact practically in the lives of the people that I'd I like know, to work I, I with. I totally see this. And, and knowing where, um, where they're coming from, right? Like what they're, like what incentives mm-hmm. they have and need and the kinds of supports and understanding of just the whole system in order to, um, be successful at this and this is just such a it was so interesting because this was like your your master of arts degree was like really based on you know how do we get in touch with people how do we help people and the whole thing is you kind of step back step back step back and say okay (laughs) you tell me you tell me what you really need and what's really going on because I'm coming at you with like an open heart right an open mind yeah and we can have all the intention in the world but intention doesn't necessarily improve on conditions around intersectionality. You know what I mean? Or intention can often be clouded by privilege, I suppose, is what I'm saying. So in our own research, we have to move our intentions out of the way. And with qualitative research, I should say too, this is sometimes harder to grasp because these are not quantitative. Like I could have measured 
cholesterol, blood pressure, I, sh I could have gotten quantitative results, but that's not what this research needed. This needed qualitative findings, which are more abstract, right? And so that was actually, you know, one of the biggest surprises was how do we really get to the root of the qualitative research to make sure that it's concrete and solid? And um, because, because we're not measuring blood pressure, you know? Right, right. Which is the exact segue for the next question was, you know, when you were, when you went back to school and you were doing this kind of research, what kind of surprising challenges did you come across that you weren't expecting um, to happen just in terms of the process of collecting your data and, and mm -hmm. synthesizing it? Part of it was making sure I understood how to write uh, really good surveys. That, that was definitely a big thing that was brand new for me. So I had written a bunch of survey questions out and given them to my advisor. And he was like, no, you're not even close to what this is supposed to look like. And so it, then it was this deep dive into how do you write proper research questions that have no bias once again. And, um, and same with the survey questions. And then the other big piece around that was the ethics. The, the ethics piece is enormous. And so I had to obviously, as every graduate uh, research project does, you have to undergo an, an ethics review. And, and thinking that my question seemed right and ethical and polite and all of those things, but then having it reviewed to say, you have to word this differently because we, we are protecting the rights, the freedoms of your um, study participants, right? And this has to be in a way that, that, that is correct according to the ethics research board. So especially when you're working with youth and uh, with marginalized youth to top it all off, right? So um, it was, it was really nice to have my um, my advisor and the whole ethics board and in fact the university in general behind me so that I could make sure that that part was done properly. The ethics review took longer than anything else that I did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that you're including that too because I think that's a big misconception mm -hmm. among the general public who doesn't understand the research process is getting approved by an ethics board in any research capacity is a huge step that everybody who does research has to do every single time you want to start a new project. And so this isn't the way it used to be, you know, 50 years yeah. ago, you just be like, that looks interesting. Let's go. You know, it's, you have to write the approval. You have to be willing to grow and modify, listen to them and make sure it meets all the requirements so that everybody is respected and has voluntary participation yeah. and it is done with the utmost standards. You know, it was interesting because uh, I started the, what I thought was going to be the practical portion of the thesis, which was going to be cooking classes uh, in person right before COVID. <laughs> and so um, I got this, it took me forever. And I got this proper um, consent form together for the students or for the uh, participants. And um like even having to connect with a participant and say, you know, uh, I need you to, to sign this and to consent to this, then they've got all these ideas in their head, like around what am I getting into? What is my information going to be disclosed? Is my anonymity protected? All the stuff that I had, they had no idea, right? They wouldn't have thought of that. They just wanted to take a cooking class, but then you actually put the ethics portion in their head and they get very protective. And I actually found, um, I got very few participants because once they started to read the the 
consent forms, it kind of freaked them out. And then COVID happened and I wasn't able to do the, <laughs> the practical portion anyway. I had to go back and lean on actual. Oh, no. Yeah. So I leaned on actual research from, uh, from other studies in the past to compile my research. So it didn't turn out exactly the way that I wanted, but it was still, it, it was still important to do, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay. So on to our probably last question, but I have a feeling this conversation might snowball. <laughs> Would you be able to share with our audience uh, and nutrition mm -hmm. professionals how you were able to take the results from your study and turn them into a business that you can now run that still aligns with your values and still aligns with your business so that you're able to actually. Mm -hmm. That's such an excellent question. And, uh, you know, one thing I think in, in school for any type, for anybody that's a caregiver, like we are, um, you know, the, the business portion of schooling is, is always a small portion, whether you're a doctor, a dentist, a nutritionist, um, we, we don't all learn to be entrepreneurs, you know, and I've had my own business for, uh, 20 years consulting and trying to grow and change and shift as my knowledge grew and changed and as the industry grew and changed. And um, so I knew when it was time for me to go back to school, first of all, because I kind of felt like for my business and for my clients, I had hit the max of what I could do. And I wasn't doing much different than other really excellent qualified nutrition, nutrition professionals. And so when I found this niche that I wanted to work with, first of all, it's never my intention to make money off of marginalized youth. I think that's really important to understand. And so I've set up a business model whereby my leadership skills that I learned through my degree, because I took mostly leadership-based courses, um, you know, regarding emotional intelligence and running organizations and that kind of thing. I'm using those skills to power my business and to work with other corporate leaders. And then, um, and you know, leaders that are in the social justice world and social enterprise world. So that's how I'm using that portion of my academic learning to kind of go to corporations and say, you know, I can offer your teams, your employees, really true, deep, rooted in research type help and then the, as far as the youth go, then I'm able to take some of that money and funnel it towards programming for marginalized youth. So I have sort of a, a twofold way of looking at um, my business. The money has to come from somewhere. We're all in business, right? So for me, I decided, and I mean, I still could start a nonprofit. That's in the back of my head that the other way to go about this would be to take the information that I've used, start a nonprofit and then apply for grants and funding to work with marginalized youth, but there's so many people to help of, of all different, you know, in all different areas. So still working with corporate leaders and their teams is an interest of mine. Um, so the money comes from there and then I'm able to funnel it and create programming uh, for the people who don't have the money to pay for it. Yeah, it's so interesting how you were able to mm -hmm. kind of have two branches where you're doing you're doing something, but you're, you're also doing something else. And, and it's, it's hard enough to run kind of one arm of a, of a profession, but you, you have them both together. And it's such a unique combination that you, and uh, that you have, that it was really interesting to hear about um, how you were able to kind of 
separately, but put them together, but keep them completely separate from each other. Yeah. And I thank you. And I have this, this little sort of, um, I have this little sort of mission, I don't know, you know, to make sure that all kinds of people everywhere really understand about equity, equality, dignity, and justice. So if we, so talking to the corporate special social, social corporate responsibility world about this kind of thing is still like still really motivating to me. And um, yes, like nutrition consulting with them is great, but I also wanted to point out that another way to generate revenue is to do talks, keynotes, um, lectures. Uh, this is a better use of my time and money teaching particularly, I find is a better use of my time than say just one-on-one you know, sort of nutrition consults where you're truly trading your time for money, like minute by minute. <laughs> so for me, being able to reach a larger audience, you know, to, to lecture to 50 or a hundred or whatever people, um, and to maybe, um, you know, look at a higher ticket price for that, then allows me to free up time to, to develop programming for youth, you know, so it's a better use of my time for money trade-off, I guess. Yeah, I love it. So do I. I think that's a really great <laughs> framework for every other nutrition professionals uh, and health and wellness professionals to look into if if they do have this drive to work more in the community with whatever strikes passion in them. Mm-hmm. So that's fantastic. Yeah, and to bring it back to the research, I think think without scaring off your community. Graduate work is not for the faint of heart, as you know. And when yes. you put four hours of your, or four years, <laughs> when you put four years of your blood, sweat, and tears into this research, it is valuable. It is very valuable, right? And so I want to be able to use my effort and my energy that I put into the research that I know is solid to really make a difference um, and make an impact globally. Um, because I believe that it should be shared. So I, there is, I, listen, I do one-on-one nutrition consults all the time still because I like it, right? So I still do them. But I do think that using your research as the backbone for higher level education for your community is part of the reason we do the research, right? Con- contributing back to the community is part of the research. And then contrib- contributing to the academic community and filling in gaps there is the other reason to do the research. So um, it's valuable stuff and it, and it hurt. It took a long time to do it. And it, you know, it was a lot of sacrifice and sometimes I didn't see my kids very much. And, and um, I'm, I'm very, very proud of, of the research that I did and I, and I will never neglect it. It's always apart from this point forward of my business. And it helps, I think, elevate our entire industry because the research is so needed. So the more we use the research that we have and the more we talk about it and the more we continue to contribute to it, I'll never stop researching and I'll keep writing papers. It's, I weirdly love it. I don't know. I think Lisa and I can both, I don't know how you feel, Lindsay, but yes. I, I live in the APA world and I don't even have to continue to write in it, but it's just how I write now. You know, um, it's a skill like anything else um, that, that we've learned in order to help our clients and our communities. So, yeah. Well, I think anybody who's listening knows how research-based we all are here. Yeah. And it's something that we really, I mean, we believe in so much that we created this podcast so we can carry that message through to whoever wants to learn 
which is is great. It's awesome that you're able to join us and and share what you've learned. Thank you so much. It's yes, thank it's, you. It's my pleasure. And I would say my final words to anybody listening would be, you know, congratulations on the schooling that you've already done. Never stop learning and never stop yes. getting to the root of research and never <laughs> listen to, you know, the quote unquote facts, whatever you want to call them on social media, always ask what the research says and always ensure you understand what research means. And hopefully you've got a teacher as good as Lindsay that can help you understand that um, even research is, you're welcome, even research has its bias and we have to be really careful. So if we want to do our nutrition community service, we have to be really, really good scholars. I completely agree. I think that's a really fantastic mentality to take. And it's something I, I really drive home whenever I'm teaching, you know, the, the, the nutrition course that I teach at CSNN as mm-hmm. well, you know, it's a stepping stone. It's a way to really get grounded yeah. in that deep understanding of health and nutrition and how the body works. And then take that knowledge and continue to learn on your own, take courses, do the research, ask people as many questions as possible and and just always continue to grow and evolve Mm -hmm. with the knowledge that you're learning and that is constantly coming out. Mm -hmm. It's always changing and it's important more than anything else, I think, to be really patient. Research requires (laughs) you to be incredibly patient because, you know, reading even one academic paper, if you don't know how to do it properly, you won't even do it, right? You won't even get past the abstract to be patient, but also to um, under, to not underestimate yourself. We all have the ability to grow and really understand academics. And, and it all sounds fancy when you read research papers. And I've had so many students, cause I also teach at CSNN um, who have said, I just can't, like, it's just, it's way over my head. The, even the languaging, learn the basic languaging. You're smart people, yeah. learn it, take a course take a course yep. on what academic research means, you know, and you'll get it over time. And, and when you, and then you can ask other people in your community, you know, when you need help, but don't be afraid of it. Yeah. Can I ask one last question? If yeah. that's okay? One of the things I also think is a big misconception among the public is how our opinions and our understanding and knowledge pool of knowledge really evolves as we grow and learn more. Did you find when you were doing your research and as you continue after um, that that was a challenge for you? Or is this something that you were kind of expecting because you have a science base? And is this, I I guess what I'm trying to ask here is, um, this is something that is very common in science and but were you surprised by how much your opinion and your understanding evolved as you were doing the research? I would say that not only was I surprised about it, but so pleasantly, so pleased (laughs) by how I grew as a human being. The, it, this degree changed my life. It changed who I am as a person. And part of that was my peers, the, the amazing group of scholars that I worked with for four years who were 
would challenge me so deeply that it hurt sometimes, you know, like I would throw together some response paragraph to an assignment that I had and my prof would maybe mark it as, you know, whatever it's you, you've met requirements. And then uh, one of my peers would come back to me later and say, what did you mean X, Y, Z? And I would be like, oh God, I don't, I don't know. I have to think harder about this. And, and, um, and it, and you dig, you dig deep. I'm actually touching my solar plexus right now because it hurts right there. Like you have to dig so deep to come to the level that your peers are at. And that's where I function from now because of research. And those friends that I made in school are now my dearest, closest friends, because we all were in the trenches together, digging deep, not only in our research, but when you dig deep like that, that raises your vibration in general. And then you dig like that in your own life. And it's changed me as a human being. That might sound dramatic, but it's honest to God, the truth. (laughs) I don't think so. I think it's a really astute observation that growth is painful and it's hard, but it is so necessary to just become who you're supposed to be. You know, it's, it's not easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it, but it's worth it. It's so worth it. This reminds me. Well, I was just going to say in, in our industry, in the nutrition industry, in the culinary industry too, because, you know, I bridge both. There's a lot of really base. I don't want to, yes. you know, disparage anybody, but there's just a lot of fluff out there. And I'm not saying that academics is everything. It's not. Um, in fact, academics comes from a place of privilege. The fact that we're even, yes. that we could even afford to go to university is pretty incredible, Right. But it's the, it's the growth opportunities and the challenge to look beyond whatever fact you just learned about kale or whatever, you know, and to dig super deep and always be questioning yes. and, and, and asking the deep, hard questions. That's where growth comes from. And that's what my peers at school taught me, I would think. And I think it also, for me, helps to welcome new information. Because what we knew, Mm -hmm. you know, just think about the example I give all the time is like microbiome, like honestly, 10, 15 years ago, what did Mm -hmm. we know about the gut microbiome next to nothing, but as technology has improved and now we can take a whole, you know, genomic capture and, and, and run all of these assays on, you know, a sample from from a person and see all of the different bacteria and all of the Mm -hmm. things that live there and what their enzymes are doing in those actual organisms. It's like you get into the research and you're like, you answer a question when you go into doing grad school and you come out of it with four more questions because now you've dug deeper into this and you're like, oh, wow. So I just found this thing out. But now that we know about this and that and the other, there's just this world opening, right? It's like, wow, it's like fascinating, the curiosity, you have that too. Like, like Lindsay and I talk about this all the time. I remember saying to my prof, you know, who I, my, my research supervisor, uh, mentor, who I respect and admire so deeply, he would always tell me, simmer down. This isn't a PhD dissertation. This is just graduate work. This is just graduate work. He would keep saying, and I was like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but I'm just a baby. Like I am only a baby. I have only just given you a very general thing. And you really do have to keep digging, you know, and keep learning. And it never stops because the, it's like a spider web, right? The, the depth and breadth 
keeps going in all dimensions the more you research. And of course now, am I addicted oh, yeah. to learning? Oh, 100%. Like, do I want to keep going and get every <laughs> other degree out there? Oh, absolutely I do. Like, I, I'm not tired. I don't oh, want to stop. I just want to keep doing it, you know? So I think it's funny um, what you were both talking about. Most people don't realize I'm a little bit of a history buff as well. I love learning about history. And I think it's mm. hilarious that it used to, well, I mean, I guess it still is where researchers really say oh if I could just find this out then I'll have all the answers and I'll understand and it goes back Lisa to exactly what you said where as soon as you find the answer you're like but wait I have more questions (laughs) and this is really why the research becomes (laughs) such a black hole and such a slippery slope because you know you find one thing out and then you're like but wait what about this and then you go down this rabbit hole and I Mm -hmm. I feel like it's lovely and horrible all at the same time but we learn so much (laughs) yes yeah if I I don't know you know if you listen to Brene Brown talk about because she's really one of the only like public scholars who really talks about actual research techniques and when she talks about coding her research and how she gets sticky notes to the point that they literally cover like every surface in her house as she codes (laughs) that's I I felt like I was like a like a detective an investigator you know with the red yarn (laughs) right (laughs) like attaching this fact to that fact and you know really and and but you know yeah and it could go forever my whole my whole house would be covered in sticky notes yeah I think my favorite one that she talked about um there was one where she was discussing her history with uh, alcohol and overeating and some of the the issues in therapy she's talked about and she said you know I have a sticky note in my pantry and the person said well like what does your sticky note say and she said why are you here (laughs) (laughs) I thought oh like literally like literally in the pantry yeah really hitting home (laughs) but yes I happen to love her deeply I love oh that's great this new this evolving perspective in this community to how important and valuable qualitative research is like I'm sensing a real shift in that mentality because for the longest time it was quantitative I want numbers I want hard data and that qualitative aspect was kind of ignored and it, it, it's so valuable. She, yeah, totally. It's so valuable. And she really has helped, um, you know, show that. So her methodology is called yes. grounded theory, who, for those who don't know who was developed by Glazer and Strauss, in case you want to look that up. And, um, and it's this method of, of coding research where you're listening for keywords over and over again, that come up and come up and, and key themes and key theories. It's not the only kind of qualitative research but it's very powerful and um and what's cool is she just talks about it like methodologies are normal like that's just a thing people do and so it's kind of normalized it I think where now more and more people understand a little bit about qualitative research and they're not so quick to criticize that it's fluff because you know in the nutrition world like yes there's a ton of really excellent quantitative research and can I say honestly done by nurses really like nurses are incredible researchers And some of the best papers I've read have, have been by nurses uh, and they often use grounded theory. You know, it is a qualitative industry that we're in because we're all biochemically individual. And part of the reason for that is because we are all 
different souls, different human beings that make different choices and have different histories and different backgrounds. And yes, we all have essentially the same makeup and physiology, but there's so much that goes into how and why we nourish ourselves. And that's where qualitative research comes into play. That is just, I love that sentence right there. Thank you so much. I think, thank you so much for sharing your time, but we will let you get back to your day now. And we just, we value our time with you so much. So we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is really fascinating. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's clearly <laughs> like if you, you want to nerd out anytime, just call me because this is great. <laughs> Be careful what you offer. <laughs> thank you both so much. All right. Uh, thank you for joining us today on ReSearch. Um, uh, Barbara, before we let you go, did you want to share where people can find you if they want to uh, chat you up? Oh, for sure. Thank you. BarbShelton.com uh, would be where I am on, on online. And then it's Barb Sheldon Culinary Nutrition on social media. Awesome. We'll link to that in the notes as well. That is fantastic. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, as always, have a fantastic day. If you have any topics or anything you'd like to d- discuss with us, you can email us at reetsearchll at gmail.com. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter. Anything else? We and um, please, if you want to subscribe or leave us a review, that would be awesome on whichever platform you're using. Um, I think we're in like five platforms now. So that'd be great. Thanks. Ooh. All right. Take care. See ya. That was fantastic, Barb. Thank you.